Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is John Simmitt, founder of the Upfront Comedy Empire. He's a comedian, producer, actor and theatre performer, enjoying current success in the musical Rush, a joyous Jamaican journey, earning five-star reviews and sell-out shows. For 30 years, John has promoted black comedy in Britain and alongside comedy tours, he has built a network of clubs nationwide. He's credited by The Guardian newspaper as the man who put British black comedy on the map and he also regularly showcased talent he brought over from the United States. Early on in his career, John made a name for himself in The Real McCoy, a hit BBC television comedy show featuring black and Asian stars that quickly reached audiences of five million. There's been numerous TV appearances since then, but he's also known for his character in the second most successful TV show ever in terms of sales, the multiple BAFTA award-winning Teletubbies. John played Dipsy, and British comedy's only Cuban-Jamaican brummy brought reggae and Caribbean culture into preschool programming. According to the BBC's annual reports, £330 million was generated during the Teletubbies' first two years alone. This unexpected hit of space-age toddlers has since aired in over 120 countries and been translated into 45 languages. From the psychedelic and surreal to the comedy of life, John brings us joy and humour. Hello, John, and welcome to the show. Wow, I was listening to that thinking, is that me? He sounds like he knows a thing or two. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you've been incredibly busy. Um, You've done so much. And I wondered, John, if the starting point of that was growing up, was the sound system culture in Birmingham how you found your way to the microphone and using your voice? Yes, it was. Funny enough, and like you say, growing up, so that would be in my teens. And this is something we talk about in Rosh, which is, as you've rightly said, sound system culture. You know, young black kids in the UK at one period grew up with the sound system operators as their heroes because unbeknownst to the mainstream, a lot of the music was simply not played on Radio 1. And that was the way the music would be heard by most people. And even though we were, the music was good, and also the fact that we were paying our TV license like anyone else, in other words, funding the thing, it was just simply it was an unofficial boycott by Radio 1. You know, 99% of tunes never got there. So the reverse of that is that the sound system became a very, very essential way of how music got out. And out of that culture came MC stroke rappers. Out of that culture came hip-hop out of that culture came remixes. So these guys, if you were 14, your hero was a 19-year-old local guy who was an MC on a local sound system or the operator, the selector, as 
Craig uh, David later on used the term, you know, rewind selector. These guys are heroes because they're huge rigs and they're entertaining you and they're local stars. So, yes, you aspire to be the, the mic man or the selector. So, yes, that is how I first picked up a mic. Yeah, brilliant. And so that the strength of that underground culture in the community that you would have had um, in Birmingham, I imagine that gives you a real sense of resilience and confidence as well, perhaps. Do you think that would have fueled your confidence to go into comedy? I don't know about so much confidence going into comedy, but what I will say is I grew up in an area, Edgebaston, the Dudley Road part of uh, Edgebaston in Birmingham, where you saw a lot of people who looked like you. My, my secondary school, for instance, I used to think it's almost exactly not ex- Portland school was almost exactly one third black, one third Asian, one third white, almost, you know? So you saw a lot, you saw diverse people, but you saw a lot of people around you who looked like you. So there was never been apologizing in the Jamaican way for who you are. So there was a confidence there. I wouldn't say it translated into getting on stage the first time because all comics will tell you you're terrified the first time because you're thinking, oh, I think I can do this, but you know, stand up, you know, there is no safety net. It's you, the microphone and the audience. And the jokes are stuff you've written yourself. So if it works, credit. But if it doesn't work, like I said before, no uh, no safety net. They're rejecting you and your writing. Yeah, I mean, I've seen you uh, refer to that fear elsewhere as a, a, a bare-knuckle ride. I mean, it's such a terrifying idea to have to walk out on a stage and make an audience laugh. How do you negotiate that, particularly at the beginning of your career? How do you decide... Yep, I'm going to do this terrifying thing. I think it's more it's more nervy the first time, and over the years, you you translate that sort those sorts of nerves into adrenaline. So sometimes, if you're not a little bit nervous, <laughs> you, you'll be worried because where's the adrenaline going to come from? But I think, and I can't speak for all, all comedians, but I think most of us would have made our friends laugh, which includes non-comedians. So I suppose you have the inkling that well, I make, you make your friends laugh continuously and regularly over the years maybe I could have a stab at this so I don't think any well I could be wrong <laughs> I don't think anyone who's never made any one laugh or really makes anyone laugh thinks oh I'll try stand up you know there'll be some reason why you're thinking I might have the knack for this so while it's while it might be daunting because yeah you're going out for the first few times in front of audiences with untested material and, and not that much stage experience although I've been running around sound systems for years and without knowing it practicing then there is a sense that well i've got to remember joke one joke two joke three joke four and then say goodbye so there's a structure to what you're trying to do from day one which helps you in terms of focus on that rather than the crowd who might not find you funny yeah and and also i wonder whether it's kind of a healthy curiosity at the end of the day the comedy is so brilliant at social observation you know exploring boundaries and obviously our our diversity, our different cultures. And I wondered whether the kind of psychological aspects of comedy, of of what you do, is is a real driving force, that you have a natural curiosity in how people work, what what makes people tick, what makes us all laugh. Well, it's... 
it's hard to say that because not the same things makes everyone laugh in the same way that we like, you know, we all like different foods or we like different films and music or whatever. They're, your job is to make the majority of the room laugh, hopefully all of them, but we don't all, all laugh at the same thing. But yes, to answer your question, there is a curiosity is why do people behave a certain way? Why do people wear clothes that you think are awful? And no, and no doubt some of them might think your clothes are awful, or your food's awful. Um, it is trying to what makes people tick or what makes people behave a certain way. And, and also there is that realization that it's not really any such thing as ordinary. It might be, it might be common, but it's not ordinary. You know, you drill down to most people and you find they've got a story to tell or they've got a quirky habit or a quirky hobby. They might not talk about it because exactly that's, it might be quirky, but you meet very few people who are seriously dull all the way through. And then that makes them distinctive because you're thinking, wow, you really are that dull. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess really you're analysing all the time, aren't you? When you're confronted with an audience, you're analysing what could be a really complex makeup of that audience. Yeah, without even realising, and most comics will tell you that, you know, you can have 500 people in, you know, with you and you've got maybe 499 or 95 of them laughing hard, but you'll spot the person in row six or row seven who isn't laughing because it's weird how the eyesight works you can see you know smiles and teeth and laughter of that person isn't laughing who might rightfully not find you funny or unbeknownst to you might have had a really bad day or had some really bad news on the way to the show that they bought tickets for a good while ago so you learn after a while not to address that wonder well what's going on there but yeah got 99 percent of the audience or 90 percent of the audience laughing let's stick to that yeah, and what's really interesting is, of course, you've got um, your Jamaican, Cuban, British perspectives. And I, I, I know it, um, you were often going to New York, weren't you, to visit your dad? I think your dad was actually living in New York. Yeah, he li- oh, wow. <laughs> stuff, yes. He's buried in New Jersey and lived the last 20 years of his life there. In fact, he only, I think about, he was only here for 10 years because he came into UK in 62 and left in 73. But most of 71, he was in New York. Yeah. You know, having a look to decide if it was a better place to move the family again. Having, you know, moved from Jamaica to the UK, he then emigrated from the UK to America. So I think we, we've all got our, our journeys. And before I was involved in comedy, I meant part of every summer, I would go across and spend time with first with him. And then when my mom joined him, to our surprise, with, with my parents. So it was a weird thing being in your early 20s. Yeah, your parents are now living in New York. Normally, it's, it's the child who'd go abroad, not the parents. Mm. But it gives it gives you a wider perspective, and you could also see how the West Indian community out there in New York, specifically, were their situation was different to those that are experienced in Birmingham or in London, for instance, and so on. So you realise there was a diaspora. Yeah, and I was really interested in in, in that in in what kind of contrast that must have shown you. I mean, that was, you know, quite a unique insight to have, isn't it? Um, in you know, when you're a young person, you know how the the UK audiences were operating, and then that comparison to what you might have seen in the US. Did did anything particularly stand out in terms of different audience behaviour? Well, I wasn't I wasn't performing there, and I, I'm New York. I also remind myself is different to other parts of America. You know, the same way we know that, you know, Leeds and London aren't the same, you know, Bristol and Bradford aren't going to be exactly the same. They're in the same country and they'll have lots of things in common. I had to remind myself that New York wouldn't necessarily be the same as the the Midwest or what have you, but New York itself has a certain energy. 
it's got a certain energy and a certain attitude in a lot of ways and so on. So you think, wow, these people are hardcore. You know, you think to yourself, well, I consider myself quite, I don't know, I wouldn't call it edgy, but, you know, aware, shall we say, or streetwise. There's other levels of streetwise out there. <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, in terms of um, it's everything was bigger and faster and in some ways better and in a lot of ways worse and so on. So I always call it having my own coming to America moment. And by that, what I mean is in that movie, Eddie Murphy's old film, Coming to America, there's a bit where his character and, and his uh, his best friend land in Queens in New York and, you know, in their fine, in their fine clothes and quickly, they, you know, they're, all their 20 cases are taken and they're quickly the contrast with with their regal life back in the in the motherland well you're in the ghetto now you're in the hood and i had a bit of that when i first went to new york to see my dad's apartment you know it was in brooklyn it was 1983 and it was like wow this isn't this this is this ain't glamorous. <laughs> it's exciting. Don't get me wrong. It's lively, but it's not glamorous. It might be a bit much for me because at the time I was st- I was studying. I was at college, <laughs> so uh, doing A levels at the time. So it was like, do I want to live out here and start again, or do I want to complete my A levels and you know try something? And for me, that was the hard choice. Oh right, so that was um, a major decision for you to make at that point in your life. You had that choice, did you? The, the yeah, because I had my green card. I'd got my green card to live and work in America. My mum was joining my dad. So it was a matter of you're not going to cut off your parents. You're going to still see your parents. But because I had, like many people, I had the beginnings of a career here and the beginnings of a career direction, whereas if you were to go to America, you'd have to start everything again, you know, from education to friends to what do you do. Whereas here, there was definitely already a plan, some sort of creative plan to work in the creative industry. So if I'd gone to America, then it would mean starting everything again. And at a time when I wasn't even sure how I was going to work in the creative industries. And of course, out there, you've got millions of people trying to do the same thing. You'd just be now a black British person trying to learn the culture and get on in that industry, so in one of those industries. So yeah. it, again, it wasn't a hard decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and an and a industry that's incredibly tough at the best of times. Yep. So, and just before we start exploring a bit more, actually, you know, obviously about about your career, I'm also interested in that journey, your 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 family's journey. So, your mum and dad came over from Jamaica, but your dad chose to go off to America. So, do you does your family have a, a direct line with what we refer to as the Windrush generation? Was was there a move in at that time as part of that that invitation? Well, yes, they they are that generation because I, I can't remember the exact years, but you know, um, them arriving in sixty two. That is that is in the middle of that mass immigration from the Caribbean, including Jamaica, over here that gets described as the Windrush generation. So they definitely are of the Windrush generation. And what I mentioned to someone yesterday, funny enough, has not been documented anywhere. I was doing another interview, funny enough, about Windrush. And I just thought that my dad, I had two uncles in London and an aunt in Leeds, and all four of them moved to America in the early 70s. And then I thought about it, and I actually reeled off a number of my classmates' names whose fathers also moved to America in the early 70s. There's people like uh, my old friends, Naveen White, Colin Bell, Robert McKenzie, Sandra Beckford, and others. And I'm thinking to myself, this has not been documented, the fact that uh, in the early 70s, it's like, because of course, some relatives, the, the Jamaican community are based in Jamaica, the UK, America, and Canada. So siblings move to different places, will compare notes, and might have the meeting to say, you know what? 
America's a better a better shot than the UK. And it looks to me, because I have the evidence there, anecdotal but nonetheless real, that this was probably going on across the country, but because it's a minority community, no one has ever actually mentioned this. And I, you know, I've, I've seen that from personal experience that there was another immigration among the immigrants to America instead after a decade or so over here. So like I say, that's my dad and three of his siblings all, all, all did, made the same journey to America. Yeah, amazing. And and that is incredible, isn't it? That that's not, not been documented. Anywhere. Yeah, as is the ongoing problem with how history is written, you know. And um, Well, we try and address that in Rush. There's a lot, a lot of that in Rush, which if you get a chance to see it, you will see. Oh, yeah, totally on my list. Um, and I exactly what I wanted to to move on to. So, of course, here you are now celebrating, if you like, the Windrush generation. Absolutely. You know, Rush um, is very much, isn't it, about joy and celebration. Um, right. And resilience, because it's not it's not a, a Hollywood cheesy happy story. There's a, a lot of uh, brutality and striving and injustice and also the human spirit involved in this journey that's still going on. And that's really what's um, interesting about your role as the narrator and, and, and how you wrote and, and approached what you wanted to say. Because, of course, as much as there is so much to uh, celebrate and be thankful for from, from Caribbean culture, at the same time, we also know that that history of the Windrush generation has been riddled with scandal and, you know, the, 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 the deep experiences of discrimination and racism, despite being asked to come, despite having an invitation to come to the UK. How, how did you balance all of that as a writer so th- there was an idea for the show was was had been performed once when I when I joined, it was producer Owen Miller's idea to do a, a tribute to that generation, a musical tribute. Um, this is what happens sometimes. I po- suppose when you get different creative people working together, things can take different directions, and you know often, often for the benefit. So the idea and the initiative was Owen Miller, the director of, of uh, Rush Theatre Companies. In terms of me getting involved and ending up doing the writing that's just a reflection once again of where where i am and how and anything which is written is reflects the people or person writing the thing and here's the thing i'm a stand-up comedian so yes you 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 value humor but you also are passionate about your culture and at the same time you realize that entertaining doesn't have to be bland you know because there's lots of slick bland and, and uh, very slick very bland and very empty um tribute shows out there and nothing's wrong with that it's just straight entertainment that's not anything i'd be paying money to see because as a big music fan i don't want to see you know the motown tribute show where they don't sound like the original they don't sing as well or don't dance as well what's the point of that whereas um blowing our own trumpet but doing it with confidence rush is not a tribute show you know rush is while the music is isn't original the story is 100 original and it's based on you know, based on facts, or like you rightly say, we're, we're taking a look at a community who were invited here after World War II, invited here to rebuild the country, came and worked and were documented. And then in 2010, Theresa May, this is at the level of, of outrage of this figure, thinking, in fact, all the scandal doesn't do it justice as to how much scandal there should be. Theresa May decided to make it hostile. The thing was called the hostile environment for people who've been le- working here legally. And I met the point about 
different types of of, uh, of immigrants. It is not the same if you are a white immigrant. I don't care who wants to say that. You know, they don't tell us how things go. If you're a white immigrant, irrespective of your background, you can blend. You can lose an, an accent. If you're Chinese, if you're Asian, Indian, Pakistani, West Indian, African, you cannot blend. So what the... Windrush scandal did the, the the hostile environment was to target visible immigrants, straight naked racism. It was no, no one else has had that experience in a six year period of being invited here and then targeted, saying, "Oh, prove you 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 belong here. Prove to us, even though they've they've been working for decades." here and the paperwork is there they've paid tax you have that information but you've chosen to target them because a nasty part of your base likes that sort of thing in the same way that you know uh suela braverman has picked up that ball you know to her shame but she has none and the same with pretty patel as brown women in a conservative party knowing their only chance of getting somewhere is to appeal to the worst elements of that party party supporters with no shame, despite the fact both of them come from a lineage of immigrants. Hence the term, as Malcolm X used to say, house Negro. You know, they wear that with pride. It's an outrageous story, but we haven't made the story up. We're just reflecting on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because as the MP, David Lammy, uh, rightly stood up and shouted, the scandal is a national shame. It is, you, you, you literally couldn't write it, that you would invite people to rebuild the UK post-World War II and basically be sold a lie. And as you were saying, the hostile environment, it's even more sinister, isn't it, when that's broken down into understanding this is engineered legislation to function in a racist way whilst trying to pretend it wasn't racist. Yes, and it's it's engineered to appeal to a number of their base in the same way that you can make the link to, to something like Brexit, which was very much, in my opinion, some a nationalist um, a nationalist movement of saying, and not necessarily even a white nationalist, but an, an anti-European movement based on what I call the same delusion about, you know, us on our own is stronger than 27 countries combined because we're Great Britain. Well, we're Great Britain because we called ourselves Great Britain and we called ourselves Great Britain simply based on the fact of how many countries we, we'd invaded and taken over. So even the name is a celebration of, <laughs> of of oppression and yoking and so on. All these other countries which invaded other countries in large numbers, didn't actually rename themselves. It didn't have, you know, like um, super macho France or, or boisterous <laughs> Belgium or what have you. But, you know, we had, you know. But we, Absolutely. But we actually put in our name, that's the sort of level <laughs> of, uh, of delusion or, 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 or mocking. We are Great Britain. Why? Well, we took over all these countries. Why, why not call ourselves, put it in the name, great? It's the sort of thing Donald Trump would have come up with and people, people who don't agree with him would have said, don't be ridiculous. Well, you know what? Hundreds of years before Donald Trump, that, that sort of um, Trump vibe was going on when we called us, we put great in our name. Yeah, and surely you can only be a great country judging by how you treat your citizens, in which case I think we probably fall down pretty badly, including including the fact that currently in the UK, 40% of our children live in poverty. I didn't know that, but, you know. Mm, yeah, so, you know, stuff. yeah, th- there there are just so many um, layers um 
of basically what feels like political abuse. And actually, your comment on renaming countries, I think um, West Indies is probably <laughs> a point worth making. Yeah, if we can do that in Russia again, you know, one white guy gets lost because as people will remember, Columbus actually was looking for India. <laughs> no sat nav, no Google Maps. He got lost and found himself in Jamaica. <laughs> and, uh, you know, not men, some men not being able to admit when they're lost or, or that they can't read a map. Uh, fell swoop, we got rebranded as West Indians. That's the power of, uh, I don't know, that, that's the power of, of, shall we say, European exploitation <laughs> or exploration, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So would you say there's an importance, actually, to to reclaim the name that any one community chooses to have? So, for example, reclaiming Caribbean over West Indian, you know, the, the fact that communities are renamed. Do you think there's a, an importance in reclamation of, of how communities refer to themselves? Yeah, I mean, it's about self-determination, isn't it? Whether you're an individual some of the time or whether you're a community. I mean, you know, places like Sri Lanka, surely, you know, um, even cities have in our lifetime. Istanbul, Constantinople have been renamed for cultural reasons or whatever. You know, as I said, Rhodesia, for Pete's sakes, was named after a man who enslaved and exploited and murdered how many, how many black Africans in that country, hence Zimbabwe. So, um, you know, naming a contrast to somebody who's actually, you might as well say, well, that's no different for me than saying, well, let's rename parts of Ukraine after Putin, Putinstan or what have you, because that's the same thing yet. Some people who had a problem with them reclaiming that wouldn't be able to see it in the same light unless you point out, well, there's no difference. Mm. And so thinking about Rush, and for the listeners, I'll share some reviews quickly. This is a fantastic show, informative, hugely entertaining, and the music, wow. The two vocalists were outstanding and gave me chills with their amazing voices. And Stage Talk magazine simply says this is unmissable. So this is a really, really impactful production, isn't it? What what is it you hope audiences leave with or what's the best or most rewarding feedback you have? Bearing in mind this is as much about celebration as it is understanding a brutal history you know what if i was to go back to my my marketing days or my copywriting days it's unique in that it's it's got hits history and humor and the history is is is, can be like i said it can be quite brutal it can be quite poignant but what's most rewarding about it because we've been on the road for nearly four years is the non-stop audience response it's all online there to be seen it's almost uniformly ecstatic so you know, there's very people who people who are feeding back who's saying you know oh that was quite good then no they know they're seeing something unique in, in in terms of the balance again of humor you know pathos real history and also um you know ex- a, a, an excellent band you know there's 11 great musicians including two great vocalists and so on and again credit to the theater company for coming up with the idea so they, so what you're getting here there are slicker shows out there, there are shows with bigger budgets, all that sort of stuff. But we're not a little show. We've been filling Britain's major theatres repeatedly for nearly four years. Going back, we're penciled to go to Wembley Arena in, in October. And the momentum seems to be to be forward. But it's because it's we're, t- we're doing it truthfully. It's not cheesy. 
like I say, that if you're on a cheesy slip musical, there's lots of lots of those out there and so on, all themed around, you know, g- generic types of music or genres. This is a, actually a story of uh, Britain across the world and it's British history. I, I make the point. There's no such thing as black history and there's no such thing as white history. It's just history. And that's why the audiences, including the large members of percentages of, of white people coming to the show, are also raving about it because we're talking about how, how Britain has changed. Even in this, we basically, we go up to the end of the 60s. That was the structure. Again, you know, I thought of. End of the 60s and the first half, starting the 70s, where most of the audience or a lot of the audience will, will have that experience. And you talk about stuff like, it used to be normal. I remember doing it, you know, to send your child down the road to go and buy paraffin to heat your house. <laughs> this was normal, like it was milk. This was two gallons of flammable liquid. <laughs> you don't have to be black, white or Asian. Everyone thinks, yeah, that's actually mad now when you think about it. But this was Britain just 50 years ago. Considering you know, we we're worried about vaping in comparison. Yeah. Your child could get burnt up carrying that. Yeah, go and get the paraffin. That would be legal. Then it was normal. No one thought about it. The same way we another thing we talk about in the show is how TV, you know, you used to have the test card and now it seems bizarre that you could be at home falling asleep in your armchair and then suddenly the TV starts making this horrible whizzing noise because they've switched off the TV's service, because that's enough TV, thank you very much. It's five past 11, go to bed. Really? And that wasn't that long ago. Yeah, collective going to bed. And actually that test card was sort of somewhere between surreal and frightening. Wasn't it that strange girl staring out? Mm-hmm. That's, and that, <laughs> like I said, that's not white history or, or black history. That's just British history. That's why people, you know, if you look on of the feedback, multiple people are saying, I've, I've seen it for the third time. I've seen it for the second time now. I know one close friend who's seen it nine times and is so far, including two times last month at Birmingham Rep, and has booked a seat again next month at the Grand, this month, two week, next week, in fact, at the Grand Theatre in Wolverhampton. So that'll be her tenth time, and she she she's far ahead of everyone else, I think. Yeah, that's that's really lovely. It's really lovely that it's gendering um, an outpouring of love, really appreciation and a welcoming, and it seems to be um, a really happy exercise in opening windows onto each other's lives. So whereas divisive Britain is really suffering even now with with Brexit. Um, yep. Flying Nigel the Farage himself said the other day has failed. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, big surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Flying the flag of division is so heartbreaking when actually that's not where people want to be. Um, and so it does sound like Rush is really effective at enabling and reminding people that enjoying each other is much easier and much happier. Yeah, and you'd think that would be a no-brainer, but I think if there's a sort of small part, I don't know if it's a small part, of the national consciousness, which genuinely has been taught for many years, we're better than them. Hence hence all that, you know, those jokes about where we're growing up about other food from everywhere else being foreign muck, you know. It used to be a, a regular line in uh, in sitcoms, but of course comedy has always got that grain of truth. There is a lot of people who just think anything that's not ours is different and inferior, even though they didn't realise even stuff like potatoes were imported. They were foreign ones. You know, so if you're selling off people the idea that, oh, yeah, you know, uh, us on our own are actually better than 27 countries combined, and enough people have actually been brought up to believe we're, that we're, we're better than anyone else, of course you can have acts of self-sabotage like a Brexit or what have you. 
Yeah, and it seems that um, what's additionally interesting about the work at Rush Theatre, in addition to the productions, is also the company focuses on opportunities that is all about creating a more diverse and equitable society. So I understand um, Rush is involved in all sorts of uh, training, uh, initiatives, opportunities for young people, scholarships. So I wondered if you were also involved in that aspect of, of the company's work. It's very early days and lots of you know, credit again for the vision. Obviously, you, on one hand, you've got the vision. On the other hand, you've got to have the time to put that in, into action. So, yes, there's increasing demand for versions of Rush or small parts of Rush to go into schools through to the theatre company. On Saturday, we're doing a gig for union workers. It's, they've actually booked a smaller version of the show in the afternoon. Uh, for union, and I'm not sure if it's part of a conference or anything, so we're doing a cut-down version of that. So whether it's schools or whether it is, uh, you know, work, workers' groups, there seems to be demand that is growing and the company's working hard to fill. And again, I know I'm speaking for, for him, but the producer, Owen Miller, has also got ambitions, like you say, to give opportunities, as I've been doing for years, to performers, to not just performers, but also arts workers, uh, people to l- learn crafts and learn on the job. And, and nothing's perfect, but the, 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 the motivation and the intention is certainly there. Yeah, the intention is there. And of course, um, this is absolutely something um, you have lived and, and breathed. So in terms of how you have given numerous comedians opportunities breakthrough talent including American talent opportunities in the UK can you contextualize for the listeners what made you decide to effectively do this for yourself so um the idea of founding upfront comedy empire and you're asking a good time because I did an interview yesterday. It started in 1992, very long story short. I looked in the local Watson magazine, which came out every month, and there was going to be the Birmingham's first comedy festival. And I approached the the uh, guys organising it, who until recently had been managing Frank Skinner, who'd not long won the Perrier. And they were on a high from, you know, being, quote unquote, the people who discovered him. So I... Went and found them, you know, went down to the, the offices where they worked, or was it the, the Bear Tavern? And I said, oh, you know, I pitched an idea to them. You've got your comedy festival coming up. At the time, we were doing a monthly show in a small 110-seat theatre. And we were at uh, Art Centre, the cave on Mosley Road in Birmingham. And we weren't even filling it, but I said to them, we've got this talent, you know, it would be good to include us, you know, in a theatre show, a large theatre show as part of your festival in September 92. And the two guys who I've got so much respect for, Simply, they turned me down. And why I say that, this was uh, Malcolm Hardy and Keith Duddy. I don't think they're involved in, in comedy anymore. But when they turned me down, until that moment, it hadn't occurred to me, to be fair, because I was only a year and a half into it, to put on a show. So the light bulb went off. And I thought, well, I'll do it myself. I rented the Alexandra Theatre for £2,000 in 1992, which gives you an idea of that the arts was going quite well in those days as a freelance marketer as, as I was put on the show and I always say when you use your own money you remember figures so officially we sold 996 tickets for my first show and it's only later on I realise if you've never put a show on going to a 1400 seat theatre is not the way you do things you normally start small but I was up and running to the point where having showed that the idea worked Malcolm and Keith came back and asked me to put on a show actually as part of their, their festival later that year so that's how I got going 
And then other theatres started to come on board saying, oh, we heard what you did there. I was getting calls to come up and talk to them. And I was starting to sell packages, whether large one-off shows in larger theatres or monthly shows in art centres and the smaller rooms in the theatres. And it was only like a year and a half after that. In fact, the following year, that was 92, I went to the Edinburgh Festival to, to watch some shows. And one of the shows was a show called The Adventures of Trick Whitey Man, which was a sort of spoof superhero. And that was being put on by a then 19-year-old Dave Chappelle. And that year, there was only two two shows, well, two two stand-up shows featuring Black American talent. That one and another show called Stand Up Black Britain, which featured who is a guy called, who's now a good friend of mine, ironically, born in the UK, called Ian Edwards. And he approached me and said, "Well, we'd like to tour." This was August ninety. Put it this way: Dave Chappelle and the, the three comedians in Stand Up Black Britain were so pleased to see a few black faces. Uh, come up to see them in, in, in Edinburgh, um, that they they invited us for food at the time. We hung out with them for a little bit. And as I said, my friendship with Ian Edwards grew from there. And he said, we'd like to tour. So before I knew it, by March 1993, I'd organised my first national tour, which got half a page coverage in the independent newspaper, which makes no sense. And uh, it was off from there. So since then, someone like a J.B. Smoove, who won an Emmy, not long ago, um, he's one of the ones who, who my my daughter's now my elder daughter's now grown and married. But as a teenager, she would literally step step over these people in my flat in Hansworth, sleeping on my pull out sofas. And these are still friends to this day. Uh, a guy called Roy Wood Jr., who has just done the presidential speech. You know, the um, uh, they always have you know the press um, call, and they have a comedian. He's just done that for Joe Biden. Why? These are successes, I'm saying. There's lots of great comedians, but that's someone I brought over as an unknown to the UK many years ago and a number of times. And I spotted him on a show called Last Comic Standing. He didn't even win his heat, but I remember thinking, that guy is distinctive. And I approached him, and the ironic thing, he he's, he said this online himself, so he can always back it up as, as big a comedian as he is. This was the MySpace days, and he was like, Someone from England wants to bring him over as an un- unknown comic, and he thought this can't be serious. And he spoke to a now late and great and legendary comedian called Patrice O'Neill, who was a legend in American comedy circles, who sadly passed away way too early. And Patrice said to him, "This is what Roy told me. Oh, if John gets in touch, you know, go. You know, it's real." So Patrice O'Neill was one. J.B. Smoove, as I said, just won an Emmy in America. Roy Wood, who's just, uh, as I said, done the the presidential speech for Joe Biden at the correspondence dinner. That's what I'm looking for, the White House correspondence dinner. These are just some of many comedians, some of whom are really good friends, from Will Sylvins, who I'm going to see next month in Paris. He'll be supporting Trevor Noah on his sold-out European tour. He's just messaged me and said, do you want to come over? And then, of course, there's people like Judy Love, as the UK comics who started, who started on our stages among other places Gina Yashere who's hugely successful in America as a British comic I'm in the Legacy Centre in Birmingham now and she she performed here just last month for me because she was te- having a break in the UK from filming her sitcom to see her mum and she WhatsApped me saying get me get me a show in Brum so I did so after 32 years a lot of the people we work with because hopefully we don't step on anybody or poor excrement on, on their heads in terms of how we work. These are long, long, long-term relationships that are still, you know, still there to this day. Yeah, and, and what's lovely about it, it's a bit like what we were talking about at the beginning with, um, you know, uh, sound system culture. 
that it's about ultimately doing it for yourselves and getting away from the gatekeepers. Yeah, very very much so, because in the early days, you'd be working as a comic in the comedy clubs, what I call the white stroke mainstream comedy clubs. And unbeknownst to your colleagues there, your, your white comedy colleagues, you're already quote unquote what we call black famous. Dane Baptiste used that phrase, and I think um, Gina Yasri also does. You know, you become famous in your own community because your community has seen you performing in, in the big theatres. And that was a sort of schism because you're thinking, well, on one side, on the mainstream side, sometimes um, people don't realise what you're achieving, that you'll be back next week in their major theatre and you'll be selling it out. I mean, the people I started off with, you know, Curtis Walker. Angela Marr, Roger D, Amor and Powell, Jr. Simpson. Those were my peers, you know. Um, so, and then you have sketch shows, which were also having impacts, people like the Posse and the BB crew. So we were feeding into filling up theatres, you know. Um, since then, on the, on the back of us came the likes of, as I said, Eugenia Yasharays and your uh, Richard Blackwoods and what have you. And then today you've got your Mo Gilligans, but it's all part of a continuum. And you, I mentioned someone like Mo because he makes a point of pointing out where he came from, where he got his start, where he learned his trade in front of appreciative audiences. So it's an ongoing thing. And after I'm gone, the thing will continue. But yeah, a lot of it did actually start off with just the idea of thinking, wouldn't it be good to put a comedy show on in a large theatre as part of the 1992, um, you know, Birmingham Comedy Festival? Yeah, yeah. And to give yourselves your own profile, particularly as black comedians. So would something like when The Real McCoy came along, um, which for the listeners, that was a hit BBC television comedy show um, in the 90s. I think that ran for at least five or six years. Uh, reaching significant audiences, um, as I mentioned, five million, um, if if not more. Was that marking a shift, do you think, John, from that gatekeeping that had been going on in terms of where black or Asian comedians could perform in terms of venues? Or was that um, almost tokenistic even? I think it was it was both in that it was a hugely successful show which remained popular. It put it this way: the cast members, I was I was actually the warm up person on the show, so I was there for most of the series, getting the audience ready as well as making my my debut on the show. But the cast members, I'll tell you, the full time cast members, it just suddenly stopped. There was no okay, we're not doing a sixth series. It just suddenly stopped after nineteen ninety six. But because again, it touched people. It remained hugely popular when YouTube came along, and now all the episodes are still finally are on the BBC iPlayer. So I get tagged into clips online when people say, Oh, well, do you remember this? Or here's you, you know, in 1994, scarily. So what it did do, it gave us a credibility within the community. And remember, the thing is, this was a sketch show, so it was largely sketches. It ran to five series, but only in the last two, series four and five, did they introduce a guest, a guest stand up slot. Producers like Terry Jervis and actor-turned-producer Trevor Etienne, who's also now in America, they added stand-ups to the show for the last couple of series. And uh, that gave us a platform because suddenly these were the days of, of just four channels, so if a show goes out, you get seen. And the first British tour I organised, which was the same year, later in the year, ironically, of having done the first New York talk tour of New York comedians of the UK. And later in the year, I knew we'd filmed our pieces in May 1994 and we'd been given the date of September 94 for those episodes to be shown. So I organised a tour in October 94 and that sold out because, of course, we just had that lovely TV exposure. So we were selling out theatres as, you know, as 
it was myself, Roger D, Double Act, Amor and Powell, Jeff Amor and Marcus Powell, Angela Lamar, and Junior Simpson. And we were filling theatres based on the guest spots we received and that exposure. So um, again, it was planning based on being given that that, uh, that, that platform. Yeah, and I guess, you know, a platform, a TV platform that was few and far between because really I imagine, I mean, when I think of the 80s and 90s in terms of comedy, it, I would say it was apart from the obvious uh, breakthrough if you like, of Lenny Henry becoming the most prominent black British comedian in the UK um, in in the 80s. I remember British comedy as dominated really by the Cambridge Footlights lot, Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, um, or French and Saunders, uh, you know, all great talents in their own right. But I predominantly go to all of those white examples. I think other than the real McCoy. I can't think of any other TV platforms. There's, there's two responses along lines. Lenny Henry, for instance, he predated the black comedy circuit. So he had a much tougher ride in some ways than we did because he was out there on his own at 16 for Pete's sakes, going around, you know, a, a very different Britain and not, I'd read to think of some of the experiences he can speak for himself, but so he predated a circuit. We came up building our own circuit around us. So we had a largely black audience to start with. So it helps if the people People look like you and understand what the heck you're talking about. And of course, we went further into the mainstream. However, so Lenny came up in the era of people like, in the stand up world, shall we say, in the era of people like your Bernard Mannings and people like that. So who knows how tough that would have been playing those same audiences. Whereas we came, as far as I'm concerned, on the backs of some of those artists you've just mentioned. So setting out live with Ben Elton. You know, um, Rick Mail, Adrian Edmondson. These guys were largely doing sketches and some stand up. But in seeing them doing what they did, it's ironic because a lot of the so called racist comedy was coming from white working class people. The middle classes who largely came up with the alternative comedy circuit and scene and explosion was what inspired ourselves because these were people who were closer in age to us they weren't that much older than we were and at the same time they were talking about stuff we could relate to you know there was no english Irishman and a welshman going to a pub no mothering or stuff it was much so even though you're pointing out you know french and saunders and uh as i said stephen fry and people like that were white and of course i'm at the point middle class they actually there's a definite link as far as i'm concerned between the alternative comedy explosion and the black british comedy explosion you know the black british comedy explosion came on the back of that and had nothing to do with the nightclubs where bernard manning and you know the others were playing and jim davidson whoever were playing their trade yeah yeah which is just jaw-dropping now isn't it that that was like the jim davidson sketches was acceptable mainstream television when you think of all the talent we've had the likes of curtis walker is one of the greatest comedians this this country's created or come out of the uk and then people like Ori stein and others who are doing dame baptiste they myself I, i use myself in terms of just as a comic i'm not saying you know claiming any particular mantle, but these comedians, Genia Yasserine, none of us could have come through if there hadn't been a black circuit. You know, we couldn't have gone into those places where Lenny had to go and come out intact. 
you know, um, whether it's mentally or spiritually or whatever, you know, you couldn't be yourself. So by having a circuit to perform, you know, to your peers, of your peers and what have you, that gave you the sort of grounding to go further afield. So as I say, today you've got people like Ori Styler doing their thing and they're, they're very, very um, switched on in terms of what, what they're putting out there and so on. So, you know, um, the future's brightish. Mm. And reflecting actually um, on Lenny Henry um, a moment, it's really interesting when you do look back, you know, especially when he was as young as 16, you know, in those early years, he was, I think it, to me, it was such a skillful crossover of ideas he had. So he would celebrate his African Caribbean roots. He would parody his African Caribbean roots. And he would also do hilarious impressions of white characters like Frank Spencer and to me, for a mixed audience, that was such a skillful crossover. Um, and of course, he's gone on to do phenomenal work. And he's now Chancellor of Birmingham University, where there's also a Lenry, Lenny Henry Centre for Media Diversity. So I guess he is a bastion of hope, isn't he, of, of, of boundaries that can change and what can be achieved? Well, he's a performer with a legacy, isn't he? You can, you can go, to, like you say, 40 years of work. You know, what I mean, some of some of which is, is, is there was a sketch show he did many. In fact, it was a series of six films. I take, take a, um, I think one he he played a barber. Another one he was a black and white pathé type um, spoof. I remember thinking these are brilliant. There were six self-contained films. Oh, this will be. I'm thinking late eighties, possibly very early nineties, and I thought those are brilliant. I've got them on a VHS somewhere and so on. But like I say, his his journey is different to those who came after him because he was on his own on a often hostile circuit and he was much younger. You know, we were starting off in our late and mid twenties. He was, as he said, starting off at 16. Mm, it's incredible. And on TV at 16 too. It's just so young, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I said, as a father of 16 year old daughter, the idea of letting your child go and experience and who knows what, what, you know, he can speak for himself, but who knows, you know, the sort of experiences that he's had. Yeah, exactly. And actually, you know, there could be listeners now, uh, maybe listeners that are interested in entering the, the comedy circuit um, and and those that may be really young, but really fearful. And that may be fearful just in terms of the risk of performance, of success and failure, or fearful because of issues that continue around Will a white audience like me? Will a black audience like me? You know, trying to change divisions. To be fair, that's the same for any comedian. Whichever the audience is going to be, you don't have to be a black comedian to have that nerve, that sort of challenge. And there's a sort of bravery to any performer who's going to get up and just pick up a microphone and so on. So, yeah, the challenges are there, but they're not just specific. They're different, but they're not just specific to non-white performers because white performers have got the same challenges as newcomers. And at the yeah, same that's time, right. You think you, think, you don't realise that... Uh, so in some ways, there's lots of different ways over the years, whether it's Terry Tobbies or other things, the impact you've had, because of course, if you've been in the spotlight for many years, whether it's on large stages or on TV, you don't know just how many people, you know, black, white or otherwise who see you. And in the UK, you have comedians like a Kevin Jay, who's almost like the equivalent of, well, I say some a Jim Carrey, not in style, but you have white comedians who come through a black circuit you know, because they're, they're born in a black area in the UK, in London, and those are who their friends are. Kevin Jay's an excellent comedian, and he's come up, you know, through the black circuit as, as a young white lad. And then at the same time, talking about how we have influenced people. I'm, I'm sat in the Legacy Arts Centre in Birmingham as we speak, and I'm interviewing next month, I'm doing an audience with Jay Blades. 
and he's nothing to do with the stand-up circuit. But when I spoke to him for the first time in the phone a few weeks ago, he knew all about the comedy circuit. He said he was a regular at Hackney Empire back in the day, ironically, where Rush is going next week. You know, so he's a Hackney boy and with a, a musical love like I did, who also played sound systems and DJed and DJs to this day. But I'm thrilled to be able to interview him and have a conversation with him with an audience next month. He he seemed to be appreciative of the fact that in the comedy circuit or somebody from the circuit was reaching out, wanting to do a proper interview with him. Yeah, this sounds great. It will be great. It's something to definitely look out for as well. So in terms of how, how we were just saying, you know, how that applies to, to anybody with interest in comedy, what would you say if somebody was hesitating because of the fears, the wraparound fears that may go with that? You know, what would you say based on your experience? I'd say do it and start small because not well. everyone starts off in a small, small room in front of just a few people. And remember that your creative talent can be used in so many ways. You might not end up as a performer. There's a guy I was at college with, Chris Wood. He's a producer at BBC. Uh, he was producing BBC Radio for years. I've not seen him for a while, but he was there. For, he was in the same college class as me doing A-level drama at Sutton Coldfield many years ago. You might end up as a writer, as a designer, as a, you know, a recording engineer. You might have a blog. It's just creativity, isn't it? We're just one part of the spectrum. So you don't have to succeed at comedy, but if you've got a creative bent you know follow it through see if the comedy side is going to be what gets you where you want to go or see if other things but do it because you know at the end of the day i used to philosophically say you know yeah it's bad when you don't have a good gig but that's a bad 20 minutes so for you a bad day at work is 20 minutes whereas <laughs> um a bad day at work for most people is eight hours in somewhere they don't like you know yeah yeah, a lot of it's to do with um, perspective, but also, I guess, cultivating your own resilience to get to that point. So it's interesting because you also mentioned Teletubbies. And of course, <laughs> uh, it's just such a phenomenal story in its own right. You know, that how, how that preschool um, programming became such a massive uh, and global hit. I'm curious, John, how do you get cast as a Teletubby? Uh, you get a, a phone call from an open audition. You go there and realise, again, you know, you, you seem, I wasn't old at the time, but I was the oldest person person there because I think most of the others, all the others were white and all the others were just out of drama school because I knew one of them, Jules. Um, so we, and also they didn't give us much information, so they were looking at how we moved. And I ended up as the first person cast because even from that first audition and would the producer of the show which at the time hasn't even hadn't even been commissioned started asking me questions in the set in the room while everyone else was there i remember thinking isn't it normal that you call people back and talk privately but she she cut to the chase so i got cast in a show called telly teddies which hadn't been commissioned it turns out then that the show's name had already been registered by another company and they said that, oh, we'll call you, which you're used to that. You know, you know, most of the time these will call you or we'll be in touch if it happens, don't happen. So you leave. So there was no pressure. It's like, oh, we'll see, whatever this is. And then I will link Teletubbies to something like Russian, that what the two things have in common is that they're created with an idea of not to try and be like anything else. Let's just follow our own vision, you know. Um, and Anne Wood and Andy Davenport, who came up with that, they not only were from an educational and a creative background, but at the same time, they wanted something that spoke to very young children in their own, on their own terms. Hence, it was lots of hugging. Hence, it was lovable and physical comedy. And there was repetition so they could see a sketch again straight away, which, of course, would drive some adults mad. But 
the point was this was not for you. All the beneficial stuff, whether it was students or drug out adults, also getting trippy to the show was a was a sort of a benefit that hadn't been seen. It was very much a non-cynical show, which was aimed at entertaining and also reassuring children. And the benefits of that to parents was that children would sit still and be quiet for that twenty-five minutes because it really held them wrapped. And then, much to our surprise, was holding holding other older people wrapped as well. Yeah. So. Were you able to um, input on, you know, what your particular character Dipsy would be like? So, for example, you were able to incorporate your love for your own Jamaican culture. So you were able to hum the whip, for example, you know, the reggae music and bring, you know, you were able to include your own culture. Were you able to actively design that? Yeah, credit, credit to the, the producers because they had a vision, but they work with you in terms of who you are. So even though you were given a character name, the traits, Poi Fan Lee, who's got, you know, um, Cantonese heritage, who played Poe, she included some of that in there. You know, Nikki Smedley, who played Lala, included some very distinctive movements and language in there. So once they cast us, they used us. You know, so the idea was Ragdoll Productions, again, Anne Wood and Andy Davenport's, and the vision was theirs. But once they cast us, they used our distinctive qualities. And I suppose you can say the same with stopping like, like a rush, which used, you know, my vision is how how I see the world or I've seen the world or my take on things. It's not definitive, but there's a distinctive voice that goes through the writing. So going back to Teletubbies, yes, it's a huge hit, but in my opinion, it's a huge hit because if those producers weren't trying to ape anything out there, of course, lots of things become, you know, tried to repeat it, any sort of hit. You know, people try and repeat elements, but they were, were on that space, not trying to copy anything they'd seen around them. Yeah, so from that point of view, it was very progressive, wasn't it? Whereas I think initially, some of the criticisms, it was perceived as though they were dumbing down preschool Again, from people who clearly didn't get it. And some of the time you think, am I even going to engage with you? It's one thing to like or dislike something, but when you don't actually understand it, you should shut up because you're showing your own ignorance and so on. You're dumbing down. It was aimed at toddlers and people slightly above that age, dumbing down, speaking their language and as it proved in time and not and quite quickly, Anne and Wood and Andy Davenport knew what they were doing and knew what they were talking about, whereas the critics didn't. So hey, hey ho, it's a big success now. So time has told. Oh yeah, I mean outstanding success. Uh, and and I imagine it or or perhaps it was a specific choice. You know, when when you chose to hum the whip by the Ethiopians, was that a specific choice? Because of course Part of the success, or or perhaps the main part of success for the Teletubbies, was that repetitive nature of content to appeal specifically to that preschool age group. And so did, did you spend any amount of particular time to choose what you would harm, or was that just a sort of instinctive choice? Uh, they're creative producers who were, were allowing creative performers to come up with stuff. So that was a tune I've always loved. So that became the tune. You know, it wasn't a big discussion. Gypsy's going to hum. So if he's going to hum something, let's hum a real tune. That's all, you know, already lasted the test of time. Hence the baseline from the whip became it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm afraid as we've galloped through our hour, John, I wonder if um, I could at least talk to you about the series question um, before we have to wrap, which is, cannot save us. And what really interests me about the arts, the performing arts, 
you know, the arts right across the board is, I think so much courage is often involved and a big purpose for me with this series is I'm very tired of having a government that not only makes relentless art cuts, but undermines the arts with language like soft subjects or fluffy. And so I'm very interested in understanding what we mean by courage. As we know, it's often because you have to be in a place of vulnerability first in order to take those steps into courage. But nevertheless, um, it's a significant attribute to have, isn't it, in your life? And so reflecting on all of the fears you've confronted as a comedian, as a stand-up, putting on shows, tours, what you're doing currently, taking the risk as a surreal Teletubby, you know, how do you respond to that idea, cannot save us? It's what people choose to do, isn't it? When I say that, I mean, it's what the audience chooses to do. How do you relax? When you're talking about how people relax, it's often pastimes. It could be anything from, you know, fishing to, you know, relaxing to cooking. But creativity is at the heart of a lot of that. I don't mean something like in fishing or sporting pursuits, but anything else, whether it's reading, whether it's traveling, whether it is uh, creating anything else, it is the outlet up. I hate to use the term art because it sounds a bit, a bit um, for me anyway, it's potential. I can hear myself. I'm thinking, you're sounding a bit wanky now, but hey, that's how people relax. That's how people chill out. If you're going to use words like like wellness or if you're going to have massage, I mean, look on Groupon, there's massages, there's facials, there's what have you. For me, this is all an extension of people having to get away from day-to-day stuff and actually express themselves in different ways. Art art performance whether it's reading a book whether it's watching a play going to a concert if you think of just how wide those those things are watching a film watching netflix you know watching a funny video on social media it is all people consuming art and sharing art and going to that by choice you go to work often by compulsion because you've got to you got to earn a living but all art is largely or most of the stuff you choose to do so it's a very basic human need so if you if, if you don't get that, we, we can't help you. So I'm going back to the fact that people didn't understand Teletubbies. And, and Andy understood that children like to repeat stuff in the same way that we'll go, people have been coming back to see something like a rush. People go back to their favourite film or their favourite band or their favourite album. If you're touching people emotionally, then you're doing something right and, and, and the best art does that. It might even be just the stuff that your favourite comedian, the release you get from watching one of their videos or going to a good comedy gig with four different comedians making you laugh in, in different ways. You can't put a price on that, but that's a, a basic human need. As, you know, it's not as basic as food because you can survive without it. But, you know, take food out of the equation and, um, you know, there's not many things you need as much as being able to express yourself or indulge in other people's creativity. Yeah, and it really does, it always has actually stood out to me, uh, with comedy in particular, that it really is a great act of kindness and generosity as well on the part of the comedian who absorbs all the fear to do it, Um, but also to generate laughter amongst people is such a great act of kindness because it's such a great way of taking out tension and putting in understanding. To me, it's such a great response to saying no to division. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what we we point out in Rush 
is is the same thing. You're not necessarily saying, well, people should feel ashamed of the past, but you're saying 100% you need to acknowledge what's gone on. You might not have done this, but if you're someone who's actually um, taking part in pretending it didn't happen or criticizing people, pointing things out, then you're actually part of what went wrong previously. You're, you're, you're being an apologist for that and also you're being a champion for that sort of thing. So we make the point of saying this is shared history. You know, uh, look at all these things happen, but we all experience this. Some people's ancestors might have been in different positions at the same time, but it's, it's a shared history. And I think the audiences have got that in terms of being aware of, oh yeah, look, look at this, this lens we're looking at and look at this humour throughout. So that that's a, a weird, I suppose, the way that Teletubbies is weird. Rosh is weird in, in terms of that weird mixture of humour and history. You know, in the same way, I suppose, you could say, well, it's a wider thing because I loved uh, Horrible Histories as a TV series watching that with my, with my daughter when she was young because, again, they dealt with such so many things in such a humorous way. Like, touch, but they could be dealing with the plague, for instance, and other bits and pieces, or the fact that Brits used to fight used to fight against the, the Romans naked in some cases, thinking, wrongly, that, that this would terrify the opposition. <laughs> it's it's just, just, just such a great example, isn't it, of, of how humour can almost not only help us see history honestly, but actually tolerate the truth. Yep. It's how we process things through humour, through music, through, through, through language and what have you. What I'll add in here is for the listeners, um, on John's episode page, uh, you'll see links directing you to Rush um, and you'll be able to find out more about John there. So thank you so much for your time, John. Um, no problem. It's, it's been lovely talking to you. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks very much for asking me. 